This episode of Bibliophiles is brought to you by Libromania, a podcast for book lovers from the Close Reads Podcast Network. Through conversations with contemporary novelists, poets, and biographers, as well as collectors, designers, and others, Libromania is for the person who believes that good books are an essential part of the good life. For more information, go to closereadspods.com or subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you dial up your favorite podcasts. Welcome to Bibliophiles, a production of the Center for Lit Podcast Network. In today's episode, the Center for Lit team continues its quest to discover the great ideas in books of every description, ancient classics to new bestsellers, epic poems to bedtime stories. We're glad you came along. We hope you find this discussion as provocative and inspiring as the books themselves. Want to join the great conversation? Stay tuned. You've come to the right place. So it's Bibliophiles. Welcome back, everyone. Adam Andrews, along with the Center for Lit crew. My wife, Missy. Hi. My son, Ian. Hey. My daughter-in-law, Emily. Hello. How are you guys doing today? Well, you know, pretty good. I got some, um, I got some Southwest uh, merch in the mail today. They sent me, they sent me a letter, and and I thought it was junk mail, and uh, but I opened it just to see what they were going to say, and it turns out they are free drink coupons from Southwest Airlines. Are, yeah, from Southwest Airlines. And since we're on our way on the road, those those may end up being useful. The only problem is when you um, order a drink on Southwest Airlines. It usually has very little alcohol of any kind in it and is mostly mixer. So these are free drinks for free things that should have been free to begin with. <laughs> but I still feel good. The universe is looking out for me. There's today. nothing like coupons, though. Coupons are inherently good, regardless of you what they actually rich. return. Yeah, you just feel rich, don't you? Yeah. I have four free drink coupons. Let's do it. I can do any traveling now. <laughs> yeah, we're about to go on the convention trail. It's that time of year, and Ian, I'm looking forward to, uh, you know, spending some time on the road with you. That's going to be fun. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's going to be great. Maybe we'll see some of you listeners out there. What about you, Emily? What's up with you these days? Mm, well, the Oscars happened last night. Yes. And I was interested to see that the Green Book had won Best Picture. Oh, it did. I hadn't heard that. It was great. Cool. Yeah, we haven't seen it, but oh, you we guys saw it. it. It yeah. was so fabulous. Now we have to go watch it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you said it was really great. Uh, apparently, the country agrees with you. Well, that's rare. <laughs> <laughs> Brutal. Well, you know. <laughs> she knows. <laughs> what sort of mavericks? What am I? What are you gonna say? <laughs> what about you, my love? What's new in your life? Mm, new in my life? Uh, I don't know that there's anything new in my life, but what I did today—a lot of laundry. <laughs> a lot of laundry, packing to go to Hillsdale to see the kids for a parents weekend. Looking yes. forward to that. And is this, this is not your last parents weekend. No, no, no. Oh goodness. No. Okay. No, uh, right. this is, this is parents It is a weekend. season of lasts for you. Yes, though. it is. Yeah, that's, that's very not true. One of them. We've, we've got another four years of college ahead of us, I think. The real, the important number though, is we have another 16 weeks of homeschooling. Yes. Ever. So that's the other thing I did is I... I homeschooled this morning and tried to prep so that Charlie would have plenty to do while we are out of town Thursday, Friday, Monday. Ah, the so. life of a Center for Lit um, co-director is so exciting. Isn't so it? very exciting. 
Yeah. yeah. I, I'm suffering from TMTD right now. Do you know what that is? No, but I can't wait. It's, it's, a, it's a chronic illness that I suffer <laughs> from. It's called too much to do. <laughs> Uh, the texting world is just lays before you like an open book. Yeah, it, you know, <laughs> TMTD and TMTR. You know what that you one know, is? You too much to read. Yeah, too much. To uh, read. <laughs> you know, you could really get in trouble by just randomly abbreviating things. Well, I thought about that, but know. I was trying. As it was coming out of my mouth, I thought, now, is there any, are there implications of this that I'm unaware of? Mm, well, for I'm just going to go for it's it. A, <laughs> it's a miracle. But for those two, I don't think there are. <laughs> yeah, I won. Well, glad to know that everyone is alive and kicking. Uh, we were supposed to get together and talk about children's poetry today. And I think that we should. Children's right. poetry. And the, the topic is, um, well, it's literary, obviously. But um, maybe potentially, uh, controversial is probably the wrong word, but as we were preparing to kind of figure out the shape of a conversation about our favorite children's poems and about the genre of children's poetry generally, I heard an idea that I'd never heard before that I want to sort of kick things off with. And this doesn't necessarily need to characterize our entire discussion of this topic, but I was shocked to hear that in some circles, the great A.A. Milne, is, oh, what's the word I'm looking for, is looked askance upon. Looked upon askance, maybe? Looked upon askance? <laughs> looked upon looked askance. Denigrated? Maybe you're looking for denigrated. For some sort of, of deficiency in his work. How is that even possible? Well, I, I don't know. Talk so, to the hand. So, <laughs> so what I want to do just, is... She just shoved her palm up to the uh, <laughs> to the video screen, you, you guys. That I did. <laughs> I, the reason I'm so, I'm so shocked is because in preparation for this... For this discussion of children's poetry, I was going to sing the praises of A. A. Milne to the heavens, and well, you should, and talk about what a glorious contribution to n not even not just English literature, but I will go ahead and say it: Western civilization. The works of A. A. Milne have been speaking from my own experience of those wonderful poems and stories as a child, right on up through my adulthood, and I've never come away from Milne with anything except. Um, you know, a warm, fuzzy feeling, gratefulness about gratefulness to God for putting Milne in the world, all these kind of, you know, effusive sorts of things. So, Emily, you're the one who dropped this on me. What in the world? What in the world Explain did you say? Yourself. Explain yourself. Oh, I, hey, this isn't my. Oh, no, no, no. I understand that. I understand. The, okay. To be perfectly fair, what Emily said in the green room before we went on was in some circles, I've heard it said. Now, can I share an anecdote with you first? I beg you. So Aaron was driving with us around Spokane. My son, Aaron? And your your son, son, Aaron. Your son, Aaron. And we were driving downtown, and we came upon a law office called James and Morrison. Oh, I know exactly <laughs> what you're going to say next. <laughs> so we were going back and forth about it, and we decided that it's really, they need to have sons, and then it can be James and James and Morrison and Morrison and then the ad will be, you had better not go down to the end of the town without consulting. <laughs> yes, that is so um, beautiful. Love, love, It's a love law it. office, a consultancy. Yeah. I yep. love it. You should you never go down never to the end of town. The town. Aaron has taken to abbreviating that. Whenever he um, finds something about which he disagrees with any of his, uh, of his people, whether you're related or not, he says, oh, you must never go down to the end of the town. And he just stops right there. <laughs> 
James James Morrison Morrison is a great example for what I heard because it is while um, adorable and catchy and one of those things that stick with you it is uh, not full of universal truths so ah. much or like it, it is you know it's a little bit of a nonsense poem i see um no you know I hang think on a second let her finish let her finish I'm, I'm barely containing you have to you wait have till to. someone's done no, i will i will. have to listen to okay. the end of what they say sitting on my hands <laughs> um they want to feed their children things of substance and so they and they think that it was his bad for writing down to children and they would compare it well okay so i'm like i haven't fully listened to them so i'm like representing an idea of how i understand it so i might not be fully represented if any of you listeners hold on on. i'm not done yet (laughs) i just want to get to the end of my girl emily (laughs) quit quit digressing and do it this is this is the andrews family and i am learning to assert myself good for you doing great I'm proud. <laughs> I'm so proud of you. <laughs> you go. So they say that it's his bad for speaking down to children. And the kind of the idea I got is that they would compare it to something like the cartoons of today's age that are meant to be entertaining for the children, but are not like any kind of substantial food for their minds. Now I'm done. <laughs> uh, I want to jump, jump in and defend my wife before. Well, your Mom, wife your, doesn't your agree righteous this. Wrath, your, your righteous wrath will never, uh, we can we can pour it out for ages and ages on this topic, and we want to, but give me one second first. I, it, there's gonna, it's I so pent up right now. <laughs> I want to I say to our listeners, if any of you are the person that my wife is talking about, she has nothing against you. We have nothing against you. If you don't like A.A. A. Milne, you don't have to. We're sorry for you. But that's all. Yes, yes okay. because A.A. Milne is a celebration of childhood and wonder and joy, right? Of being. It's a celebration of being. I well said. Nonsense. I wonder if, I was wondering if we were going to have you say what you really, no, I wasn't. <laughs> I guess I would love to hear you go more into that because um, you, I know you wouldn't say the same thing about like Paw Patrol. So well, this is nothing in common with Paw Patrol. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. I got a question, Mom. Do well, you know? What, I know, do you know what you Paw Patrol is? I'm assuming it's one of those cartoons you were mentioning. It is. I and I agree with you, all of the declamations you're making, but I think it would be awesome if you explained why. I would that. too. Yeah, give us a little uh, a quick summary, Missy, of that idea that it's a celebration of life or a celebration of childhood or something. Well, I really did not come ready to give a treatise on A. A. Milne. But I will read to you the very poem that Emily was just referencing. Oh, excellent. It's called Disobedience, and it goes like this. James James Morrison Morrison Weatherby George Dupree took great care of his mother, though he was only three. James James said to his mother, Mother, he said, said he, you must never go down to the end of the town if you don't go down with me. James James Morrison's mother put on a golden gown. James James Morrison's mother drove to the end of town. James James Morrison's mother said to herself, said she, I can get right down to the end of the town and be back in time for tea. King John put up a notice. Lost or stolen or strayed, James James Morrison's mother seems to have been mislaid. Last seen wandering vaguely, quite of her own accord, she tried to get down to the end of the town. Forty shillings reward. 
James, James, Morrison, Morrison, commonly known as Jim, told his other relations not to go blaming him. James, James said to his mother, Mother, he said, said he, you must never go down to the end of the town without consulting me. James, James, Morrison's mother hasn't been heard of since. King John said he was sorry. So did the queen and the prince. King John, somebody told me, said to a man he knew, if people go down to the end of the town, well, what can anyone do? Now then, very softly, J-J-M-M-W-G-2-P took great care of his M, though he was only three. J-J said to his M, M, he said, said he, you must never go down to the end of the town if you don't go down with me. Now. Bravo. Bravo. How can you not like that poem. I have to interject here. We're, we're doing this recording on a, a webinar so we can see all of our faces <laughs> and, uh, and everybody's smiling. Everybody's smiling. Okay, why is everybody smiling? Well, presumably you could say uh, because of the rhythmical sing-song, it's like getting a massage and everybody smiles at a massage because of the actual physical gratification of the thing, right? It so this is an aural with an AU yeah. gratification. Yes. Thing. Right. Orally gra- gratifying, absolutely, um, because it appeals to the ear, right? It appeals to the soul. It represents this um, kind of dignified little grown-up feeling that little James, James Morrison, Morrison, whether it be George Dupree, uh, had towards his mother, which is actually, um, there's a verisimilitude there. I think you're right about I've that. I've had four boys, and let me tell you that they, they love to grab their mommy's hand when they're little and say, Mommy, let me take care of you. It's precious. It's human. It resonates, right? And it's so very silly. It's so very silly because how old is he? Three. Three. He needs to be taken care of. There's an inherent irony in the poem, right? Its musicality is, oh, it's absolutely um, enduring in its musicality. And um, I see sunshine when I look at this poem. There's just sunshine and joy and childhood, right? It encapsulates childhood. What is the... um what is the basis upon which someone would look upon this poem askance in any different way than they would look upon comedy in general askance? I mean, comedy is a legitimate form of or, or nursery rhymes literary expression. Yes, right. We'd have to throw out all nursery rhymes. Doctor Foster went it, to Gloucester it, in a shower. And this of rain. is a question. This is a question, not an answer. But is it that? Um, and maybe this is a question for Emily, who brought up the point to begin with, but who doesn't necessarily agree with it. Let's reiterate. That's no, right. Who doesn't I, I necessarily really, agree with it? Really don't. No, I, know, I don't. I, know, but I didn't with read what you read, so I'm asking you for clarification. Um, is it? Are they talking about how all forms of entertainment, including poetry for children, ought to be educational? In other words, is there a utilitarian argument here that allows them to say things that are nonsense are not useful in a way that things that uphold righteousness and goodness and and or, or fact of some kind are useful? No, I didn't get the sense that they were talking about utilitarianism. It was more, it was coming from, it was coming from a Christian perspective and the concern was calling the children up. I, don't you think that play is one of the ways we call children up? Mm. Little children, their, their work is to play. Is to play. Mm-hmm. This is written for very young children, right? And you would have to eliminate nursery rhymes if you were going to eliminate this because this falls in with the very best of Mother Goose. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, it seems to me that the subject of nursery rhymes is worthy of discussing too. That would This would fall in the category, I would think, uh, for most people of a nursery rhyme. And there are, there are virtues of 
nursery rhymes, uh, linguistic and uh, emotional and affective, that seem to me to make it worthwhile, regardless of the, you know, the moral or philosophical content of them, right? Mm-hmm. Wordplay all by itself, just the wordplay, right? You know? D- did you notice how how um, central it is to this poem that Missy just read that uh, the word W and the word Weatherby have the same number of syllables. W Weatherby. So that when he does it, when he abbreviates everything in the next to last stanza, W G D P, it's exactly the same. And so he does the wonderful irony of abbreviating something to make it shorter and having it take exactly the same amount of time to say. <laughs> yeah, I gorgeous. think it really develops. It's just a, gorgeous. A taste for clever wordplay. Oh yeah. Children, you know. And also that plays on the irony that you were talking about, Missy. He's he's three years old and he's acting like a a grown up, mm-hmm. and this is ironic. And number one, it's ironic because it's opposite of what you'd expect. And then number two, it's so moving because it reflects accurately a stage that little boys go through, where they don't put it in these words because they're not a a Milne, <laughs> but they have that attitude toward their mother. It's just beautiful. And it, it at the same time, simultaneously, it entertains both child and parent. That is the and mark of really They're grinning for two entirely different sets of reasons, right? Maybe so. Maybe so. They're both okay. grinning, but for two different sets of reasons. Um, when I was a student at Hillsdale College, there was a group that got together on a regular basis. This is college students and faculty to read the poems of A.A. A. Milne. So they thought it was worthwhile. There's something enduring about these poems, that something evocative of the eternal things. So if that's true then, and leaving behind our, our, um, our, na- our nameless, faceless, straw man-ish uh, person that we jumped off from here. I actually don't even know who you're talking about. I know, so that's I'm, fine. I'm speaking freely. That's right. Good. That's how I wanted it. Right. Um, then is there any sense in which we um, should or do move on from children's poetry, using A.A. Milne as an example? Or is it always relevant somehow? Ian, you're, you're, I can see you shaking your head. And then also nodding your head because I asked a yes and a no question. <laughs> yes, but yeah, huh, yeah, huh. Um, no, you you do not move on, um, or should not move on. In fact, I think I would. Uh, it, we're in a habit of overstating things here. You listeners have never heard me overstate anything, um, or call myself out for overstating anything. I'm sure, but <laughs> it may come as a surprise to you. We are in the habit of overstatement, and my overstatement here would be that um, it's, it's a really good way to tell if someone has been educated. Uh, whether they think they have outgrown childish things or not. Mm -hmm. And if they think they have, they haven't been educated. Mm -hmm. And if they know they will never outgrow them, then maybe they have been educated. And we talk about um, children's literature in this regard all the time. In fact, the entire company and our entire perspective on education is rooted in children's literature because the writing of something for children requires a level of clarity and precision and understanding of the author and a level of humility on the author's part um, that writing for adults just simply doesn't. And so often the best literature was written for children, and I don't see how we could not say the same thing of poetry. Hmm. I agree. Perhaps the very, very best poetry is for kids. Mm -hmm. I want to read an example from Robert Louis Stevenson, the uh, 19th century British author. It's called At the Seaside. And I wonder if this is, um, if this plays on some of the things that you were just mentioning, Ian. It's a very short one stanza, and it goes like this. When I was down beside the sea, a wooden spade they gave to me to dig the sandy shore. My holes were empty like a cup, in every hole, the sea came up till it could come no more. Basically an image. 
It is, isn't it? Mm-hmm. But I guess my question is, how childish an image is that? Well, I, I think it's, it appeals to children because they have been there and done that. Right. Right? That's evocative of their own experience, and it appeals to adults because they were once children and have been there and done that. Mm-hmm. Yes? Mm-hmm. And in addition, can't you see it priming the pump for um, expressive writing? metaphors mm-hmm. and similes and all of those kinds of things that are going to be so important in any kind of communication, mm-hmm. verbal or written. It's preparing them for that kind of imaginative thought. And even at, a, at, at the next level of close reading that you would give to any poem written for adults, isn't there a, um, in that image of the uh, empty hole in the sand being filled by the by the tide the feeling that you get when you're trying to build something on the on the beach that is so temporary that the sea is always going to come and cancel out in some profound way you dig a hole the sea fills it up you build a sandcastle the sea knocks it down there's something about the futility of what you do on the seashore that's being hinted at in this poem don't you think in every hole the sea came up till it could come no more I think there's a there is a uh, maybe the maybe the word pessimistic is maybe too strong a word. I wouldn't say pessimistic. But there's a there's a world worldliness an understanding of um I don't know the futility of all the works of man that's being hinted at here. Well, I think you're right that there's a hint of that there, but then also it's all in the context of play. Yes. Right, that's what I meant. And so and so there's a um it's not it's not only futility, it's also the the joy inherent yes. in the that that things pass away, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It agree. was a joy to dig the hole, and then it's a um, even if it's frustrating, a joy to watch it fill up with with the sea too. Because you're gonna do it again, and yeah. it's gonna do it, do it again. again. Do it again. Do, do it again. again. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And that's just as I mean, that's a that is an extremely grown up idea that's accessible to small children. Yeah. I that's agree. what I, I guess. What I would say at. is. I don't think it's true that there is no such thing as nonsense that's beneath even children. I think there probably is. I mean, there's a lot of schlock running around in the library system and on TV for kids today. But I think the very best children's literature offers us little nuggets like that. Mm-hmm. I agree. I agree. I'm concerned about, I guess I, um, I have read a lot of things that call children, you know, you need to call your children up, talking about very small children. And one of the things that they say is call them up by eliminating anything that doesn't smack of reality. So that eliminates things like um, animals that wear clothes and talk or um, fictional characters because they're not real, right? We had friends, dear friends, that didn't want their children to ever speak of Santa Claus. They, they called him the fictitious fat man in the red suit. Um, I'm not kidding. Seriously. And they they were earnest and they really felt like that was, that was the right thing to do. Many people do think that's the right thing to do. And I am deeply troubled by this, um, this attempt to eliminate anything imaginative and to only present the children with a sensory universe Mm. as, as though that were reality, the, the imaginative things, the playful things to dismiss them as not real and to retain only the stuff that's verifiable with their senses seems to me um, counter-Christian. 
because Christianity rests upon this idea that there's something we can't see and verify with our senses. And I think imaginative literature, imaginative poetry, primes their, um, their minds to receive things that are not tangible as truth. Mm-hmm. You know? Man, I love that idea. It, this reminds me, I was just listening to um, one of my very favorite uh, podcasts from Mockingbird Ministries, the Mockingcast. And they were talking, I'm a little behind in their in their podcast. So I was listening to one that they published over Christmas. And they were talking about the Santa Claus thing. They were talking about whether they, you know, talked to their own kids about Santa Claus and how that panned out for each family. I was heartened to notice that most of them allowed their kids to believe in Santa Claus because what else are they going to do, right? <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, but they, they, they developed an idea that I think is really applicable here in the same way that you're talking about um, it priming the pump for children, for this kind of imaginative literature, priming the pump for children to understand the spiritual things unseen. Um, what they were talking about is a world in which grace operates hmm. and Santa Claus himself is a beautiful symbol of graciousness. Huh. That if you, that if you communicate about him clearly, he shows up and gives you things your parents would never give you um, <laughs> and things like that. But I just think that the, that the that world... That um, children look at the world, I remember looking at the world and just desperately hoping something fabulous would happen, right? That somebody would show up and whisk me away on a quest or that my dog would talk to me or something something would be amazing and spectacular. And I think we're born with that innate yearning. And in literature, we're um, teaching them to believe that the world will turn to them with grace and give them what they want eventually. Hmm. And it's probably not going to happen by a mouse um, clomping up to you with a long sword and... Um, whisking you away to Narnia necessarily, but moments of undeserved grace where you are given exactly what you need and exactly what you want are going to pepper their lives. And I think you're right to notice that it that literature can prepare them to see that. Hmm. And moments where you, you're given revelation to see that there's something so much more than you ex- expected hmm. that's going on in an individual scenario. You see hmm. something that you never saw before because you were looking at the material and it was as you expected, right? And hmm. the child has the ability, they're, they're not callous yet yeah. to wonder. And I think children's poetry and children's uh, literature feeds that wonder, which is one of the reasons why I myself, as a 50-year-old woman, go back to it again and again. Yeah. Mm. The world is full of wonder. I need to be reminded. And the ability to look at the world uh, and be predisposed to wonder at it, predisposed to embrace it, to see the world as a... um, as an opportunity rather than a threat is maybe a, a feature of childhood that we ought to encourage yes. rather than discourage, right? I'm thinking in particular of a, of a Shel Silverstein poem. When I was a kid, my folks gave me where the sidewalk ends mm-hmm. and um, we memorized most of it. You know, it's just a wonderful book of, you know, some nonsense poems and some quirky poems and maybe not a lot with a, with a lot of thematic content, but there was one I always remember about the treehouse. Do you guys remember this one? Oh, I taught this one to my oh, cousin yeah. once on a swing a set. A treehouse, a free house, a secret you and me house, a high up in the leafy branches, cozy as can be house, a street house, a neat house. Be sure and wipe your feet house is not my kind of house at all. Let's go live in a treehouse. Lovely. Isn't it great? 
but and, and you know it's it's sing song and it's got the great rhymes and he's just a, a wizard with words. But the the image that he paints makes you want to go climb a tree and sit up in the leafy branches, and it 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 seems to me to resonate with that childish predisposition to see the world as always being in summer on a Saturday when you can go climb a tree and while away the time. That that impulse that I think is is present in in children ought to be encouraged, and I think children's poetry is is one way that it happens. Yeah. Shel Silverstein, Sel- Silverstein, 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 love, love, love him. Frankenstein. Frankenstein. Yes. Uh, I was talking to Charlie and Aaron about this, this podcast we were going to do today, this morning before they, they left for their respective jobs. And I asked them what their favorite Shel Silverstein poems were. And one said it was uh, Sarah, Cynthia, Sylvia Stout. Do you Would guys know not that one? take the garbage out. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and they started <laughs> rattling it off to me. And the other one talked about the one called Overdues. Do you know this one? I don't remember that one. What do I do? What do I do? This library book is 42 years overdue. <laughs> I admit that it's mine, but I can't pay the fine. Should I turn it in or hide it again? What do I do? What do I do? <laughs> so good. <laughs> Oh, it's so good. So do we, um, so we, we've established maybe that we don't outgrow children's poetry or, or shouldn't, right? We're all in agreement on that. So how do we use it then? How do we continue to participate? Do we, should we incorporate it into our reading lives? What do you think, Ian? I just, I, I don't know. I'm, maybe I'm a little bit of a, of a rebel when it comes to this whole topic. I think, um, I don't think it should be used. I don't think you're using it for it. It is good in and of itself. And um, if it doesn't make you smile, go get checked out and come back and try again. And <laughs> once it starts making you smile, then congratulations, it worked. And I don't know. I don't see why we have to um, make every. And I, I guess I can see why theoretically. I can see that it is a huge burden to carry around um, what your children are taking into their minds and hearts. That yes. is a giant giant load and i'm sure that the impulse is to make sure that everything that goes into your children's minds and hearts is edifying in one way shape or form and maybe what you need from us is for us to say to you take our word for it it is children's poetry of the sort we've been reading to you today is edifying and you don't have to go hunting for some existential justification for it um, any more than you need to go hunting for existential justification for your kids to play out in the leaves. No, it's like a lens through which you can see the world, right? And don't we need those? Your children need those, and they're going to need them increasingly more as they grow and encounter the darkness in the world. And we live in a fallen world. The world is full of darkness. But don't you want to bolster them up with light and joy and levity when they're young so that they can keep it in their pocket for those days when the darkness is overwhelming them? Mm. I mean, uh, look, sometimes what I want to tell my grown children when they're really weighed down with their burdens is, you know what you need to do? You need to pull on your big rubber boots and your raincoat and go out and splash in the mud puddles today. That's what you really need to do. John has great big waterproof boots on. John has a great big waterproof hat. John has a great big waterproof Macintosh. And that said, John is that. Right? That's right. John, Eon, what you go and name your kid Eon for? My John, my Ian, needs to put on some big old waterproof boots in his Macintosh and go out and play in the puddles sometimes, just like uh-huh. I do. Because life is good. 
Life is good. Mm. This is the richness that we can offer our children in children's poetry and children's literature. Listen to this. I wonder if um, whoever it is that you have in mind would find fault with this children's poem. I'm nobody. Who are you? Are you nobody too? Then that's a pair of us. Shh, don't tell they'd advertise, you know. How dreary to be somebody. How public, like a frog, to tell one's name the live long June to an admiring bog. Do you know who wrote that? No. That was one of the most revered American poets. That was Emily Dickinson. Wow, I did not know that. Obviously, speaking to young children, but also speaking in her own voice, right? She was the, the, the recluse at, at Amherst in Massachusetts, you know, the one that hid away like Boo Radley up in the attic <laughs> and didn't want to be seen. She's nobody. Don't you want to be nobody? What is this? This is an exploration about whether or not it's significant to have fame. Do you need fame? Is fame a good or is it an evil? She's playing on one of these enduring, um, eternal ideas that all men interact with, but she's doing it in the voice of a child, mm. in a way children could understand. But the content is enduring, mm -hmm. significant. It strikes me that these poems are just as important for the parents to read as for the children, because when you were reading the one about the treehouse, you know, there's a tiny part of my heart that's like, well, you can't live in a treehouse your whole life. That's not how life goes. And like, that's just setting up false expectations. You're going to have to wipe your feet sometimes, most of the time. And to read that is to think why life is like that, because that's the way I chose for it to be. Yeah. I have the wrong lens on looking at the world and oh, I have my, my sad adult glasses on mm -hmm. and gee, wouldn't I be happier if I, because nobody's really going to go live in a tree house the rest of their lives. I mean, some people do and are very happy, but, but it's, it's, a it's state rare, of the heart, right? <laughs> yeah. Right. It's a state of the heart. It's realizing that if they didn't wipe their feet, it's not the end of the world. If there's some mud footprints in the living room. Yeah. I agree with that. It, um, I'm going to cite, as I always do in conversations about the very most important things in the whole wide world, like children's literature, I'm going to cite some Tolkien because I think he has a real handle on this idea. Um, but so in Tolkien's universe, there's obviously a quest and I'll sum it up for you. There's this ring of power, this uh, magical object that if the wrong guy gets his hands on it, the whole world is in deep trouble. And every character at one point or another in the story encounters this powerful object and it exerts a draw on them, a pressure to take it up and become a somebody, just like that poem you were reading. Yeah, It says, um, with me, you could change the world for the better. And so on the good characters, even the most powerful good characters in the story, it exerts the most sway because they would take it from a desire to do something good with it and it would corrupt them all the same. Um, and so the triumph of the whole book has to do with little people who aren't that important and who aren't themselves very powerful in their normalness being capable of resisting this draw. Yeah. There's only one character in the whole great epic, which is very, very long, if you didn't know it. Um, there's only one character who's completely unaffected at all. And it's Tom Bombadil, who enters the story singing a nonsense song and leaves the story singing a nonsense song. I didn't and notice that. only response to the ring is to hold it up like a lens in front of his eye and to look through it and laugh. And it's because of this laughter and because of the corresponding strength of his security and his own personality and his own self 
that the ring can't touch him, hmm. can't come anywhere near him. And I can just see it as this symbol of the weight of the world. All of the problems that, as Emily says, will force us to wipe our feet once in a while. Right. Um, and Tom Bombadil looks at all those and he lives in the world and he's not going to escape whatever doom and destruction is coming for all of the world's inhabitants. And yet that doesn't mean he can't have however, whatever response he wants to have to it. And his response is laughter. And that is freedom for him. It frees him mm -hmm. to encounter that weight, however he will. Um, so I think that's why we read children's literature. And that's why you should read these kinds of poems to your kiddos because you need to hear them too. So that's your response to whatever ring of power you've got slung around your neck in your daily life is laughter, just like Tom Bombadil's. Great. Oh, I love it. Yeah. Great idea. I love it. Great idea. At the risk of killing that buzz, I want to um, suggest that we, we revisit real quickly the idea that um, in order to be worthy, a mode or genre of literature needs to have a use it needs to be useful scholastically or useful intellectually. And um, granting that for a minute, although I don't, I don't necessarily think I do, isn't there also a profound value in children's poetry as, a, as an introduction to the poetic way of thinking? Of to course, the, you mean to, metaphor? Well, to, yeah, to, the, to a poetic way of looking at the world, or maybe even to put it more specifically, to a, um, an understanding of the genre of, of poetry, which is, and in the adult regions, quite distinct from the genre of fiction, say, or of philosophy or theology or science or history. It's a, it's a genre all its own with certain rules for expression, rules for understanding, rules for reading, a way of thinking about the world that is peculiar to it, right? Kind of representative language. Yeah. And doesn't children's poetry acclimate us to that mode of artistic expression? And at, like we say at Center for Lit all the time, the earlier you can be acclimated to a particular mode of artistic expression, the better off you are when you grow up at participating in that mode, right? So, so when we read children's poems to our, our kiddos, we're, we're giving them all these benefits, um, spiritual and psychological and emotional, but also literary. Yeah, Gladys Hunt said something like that in her Honey for a Child's Heart. She talked about um, children's literature, and in particular children's poetry, um, introducing kids to symbolic language. Yeah, yeah. This idea that there's mm. something behind the words, um, that the words aren't all that there is, but you can poke into the words and there's something behind it, right? Mm -hmm. This is a beautiful thing. It does prepare kids to begin to encounter the ideas of metaphor and simile, mm -hmm. representative thinking. Um I was thinking about Robert Louis Stevenson's poem, The Swing, and oh, yeah. how, how similar, how there's a, there's a likeness between it in subject matter and um, Robert Frost's poem, Birches. Did you guys ever think about that? Are you familiar uh, with no, The Swing? And, well, right. you'd have to be familiar with both of them. But listen to this. This is Robert Louis Stevenson, The Swing. How do you like to go up in a swing, up in the air so blue? Oh, I do think it's the pleasantest thing ever a child can do. Up in the air and over the wall till I can see so wide rivers and trees and cattle and all over the countryside. Till I look down on the garden green, down on the roof so brown. Up in the air I go flying again, up in the air and down. Very similar to Robert Frost, who remembers childhood, right? And he talks about um, these birches. When I see birches bend to left and right across the lines of straighter, darker trees, I like to think some boy's been swinging them. 
He remembers his childhood, and he has this long conversation about the darkness in the world and how sometimes it's really, really hard to get through it. And he finally says, it's when I'm weary of considerations and life is too much like a pathless wood where your face burns and tickles with the cobwebs broken across it, and one eye is weeping from a twig's having lashed across it open. I'd like to get away from earth a while and then come back to it and begin over. Mm. Mm. May no fate willfully misunderstand me and half grant what I wish and snatch me away not to return. Earth's the right place for love. I don't know where it's likely to go better. I'd like to go by climbing a birch tree and climb black branches up a snow-white trunk toward heaven till the tree could bear no more, but dipped its top and set me down again. That would be good, both going and coming back. (laughs) One could do worse than be a swinger of birches. Ah, yes. How similar those two ideas, one written for children, the other clearly written for adults, right? Depth and gravitas, the reality that whoever it is you're talking about is clearly looking for. But do you want to give that to your children? I want to give them a swing, man. Up in the air, so blue. Oh, I do think it's the pleasantest thing. Up in the air and down. Right? It's the pleasantest thing ever a child can do. So you're you're basically answering my question. Yes, exposure to that kind of poetic thinking and that kind of poetic sight of the world at the Robert Louis Stevenson child's poem level would presumably prepare a student to encounter Robert Frost Birch's later. And Well, and not only Robert Frost Birch's, but Robert Frost's problem. I mean, clearly, yeah. Robert Louis Stevenson prepared Robert Frost for that problem. Don't you think? Yeah. Um, seeing the world through the eyes of a child and thinking about birches being swung by little boys who couldn't get to town because they were too far away to participate in things like sports, baseball. So they had to make their own fun, right? Right. And remembering doing that when he was a young boy, that childhood experience gave, gave him the necessary stuff to overcome the twigs that lashed his eye open. You know, the hard knocks of life that made him want to get out of here. Mm-hmm. Yeah? How's he going to get out of here? He's going to remember his childhood. Mm-hmm. He's going to go swing some birches. That's beautiful. Any other final thoughts on favorite children's poems that must be? Here we have a chance, Senator Philip Crew. <laughs> we can tell the listenership, we can tell the world what our favorite children's poem is. Any titles to, that we haven't mentioned yet? I have a couple books that I haven't mentioned yet, that are more recent All right. additions to the children's library. Um, one called A Poke in the Eye, and another called A Kick in the Head, both by Sweet. Paul Genesco, Genexo, J-A-N-E-C-Z-K-O. You pronounce it. I don't know. And all the illustrations done, which are brilliant, by the way, are by Chris Roshka. A Poke in the Eye is a, a book of concrete poems, so it wouldn't pay to really read any here for you. You have to go check it out and take a look at them. They're very imaginative, beautiful little poems for kids. And they introduce the genre of concrete poetry for children. And A Kick in the Head is, he calls it, an everyday guide to poetic forms. And so he's going to introduce the kids to um, all kinds of like sing canes, haiku, various forms of poetry. Mm. And still with that imaginative lilt in his voice. Sweet. I want to go read those. Oh, they're very fun. Buy it for your own library. Love it. Love it. Well, in the absence of other contributions, I think we should start a conversation in the the chat box 
below this episode, wherever it's posted, and see if we can get listeners to contribute their own uh, ideas, uh, maybe some sort of master list of the great children's poems of all time. Uh, love to see this conversation continue on some of these issues, whether and how uh, children's poetry and children's literature more broadly might fit into a well-rounded reading life. But I think we will leave that for another time and adjourn this episode of Bibliophiles. Thank you, Center for Lit Crew, for being with me once again. It's been my pleasure. We invite you to check out the other episodes in the Bibliophile series, iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast content, and also invite you once again to join us on the website at centerforlit.com to see what else we're doing in the world of books. Thanks for coming, everyone. It's been a pleasure. Until we meet again, happy reading. Happy reading. Happy reading. Bibliophiles is a production of the Center for Lit Podcast Network. Find new episodes each month on the web at centerforlit.com, where you'll discover dozens of resources to equip and inspire you to participate in the great conversation, including the Pelican Society, a membership program for folks who love the Center for Lit approach to all things literary. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Until next time, happy reading, everyone.